Because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again, and the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than we. Welcome to Pints with Chesterton, a podcast where two millennial women dive into the wonderful and whimsical works of Gilbert Keith Chesterton. I'm Murray. And I'm Grace. Today we are talking about Orthodoxy Chapter 4, The Ethics of Elfland. Woohoo! Yeah, I think this is one of the most famous excerpts maybe from this book, this chapter. I just hear about it a lot. I hear a lot of people talk about it. Agreed. I think this is one of the chapters of the book that people, it, even if they don't read the rest of the book, they perhaps read this chapter. Um, and it's definitely, I mean, even just the title is very whimsical. So mm-hmm. I think that's part of what draws people in. Um, Grace, Absolutely. What, what are you drinking this morning? Or I guess, yeah, it's still more. It's more. Nope. It just turned afternoon. What are you oh, drinking? Did it? This well, afternoon? I'm still drinking coffee. <laughs> so <laughs> me too. <laughs> I uh, I have this cute mug that my friend made for me. Um, shout out to Nicole. I it's love called it. Daily Cup of Joe, and it has a picture of Saint Joseph with Jesus on it. So <laughs> it's really adorable. Maybe we maybe you can post that on our Instagram. That's pretty yeah. cute. Um, wonderful. I'm having a coffee too. I got it hours ago, but I'm. St- still sipping on (laughs) it still working on it yeah delicious coffee cup number three for me unfortunately today so (laughs) oh my goodness well hey some we all have those days yeah um so it's it's actually only been a few days since we last spoke but anything new going on with you this week um not much and I I mean since the last couple of days I guess it's been the weekend so um had a a fairly chill Sunday which was nice we've had welcome week at school at um LSU where I work and so there's a lot of people coming back on campus and everything is very um vivacious and (laughs) full of life and um anyway so I haven't really obviously in the last couple of days had much uh other things to read besides this chapter but I got in the mail something that I ordered um and now I'm gonna butcher how to pronounce it because it's in Italian or Latin, I'm not sure which, Illustrissimi or something like that. It's letters from Pope John Paul I. Okay. Have you heard not, of this? I'm not familiar, no. So I heard about this, that it was one of the few things that he published. So John Paul I was the one that was Pope for 33 days. Right, um, So right. he was elected after Paul VI passed away and then in 1978, and then a month later he passed away, and that's when John Paul II was elected. So um, anyways, he didn't publish much, but he did publish this one book, 
And it's a series of letters that he wrote to random people, random characters and books. Um, so and so cool. anyway, one of his letters is to Chesterton. <gasps> so I can't wait to read it. <laughs> oh, maybe we'll, well, you'll have to let us know how it is and maybe we can do a short episode on it. That would be awesome. Yeah, it'd be fun. So anyway, I'll, uh, I'll report back on that once I've read a few of those letters. So cool. Um, I'm not reading anything new since uh, our last episode release, still reading the same books, but um, I did have a fun experience this morning. Uh, my husband and I got to go to Daily Mass, which was really nice, and um, the the priest quoted Chesterton um, nice. ta- talking about things in tension, basically like paradox and um, how like the the Christian faith is a both and faith and how there are so many things that seem opposite that are held in tension. And when he said Chesterton, (laughs) I started poking David. I'm like, ah, (laughs) this is so great. So, um, well, wonderful. Um, I want to just briefly recap what we've talked about, um, what we've read in chapters one through three of this book. Um, and then we're going to jump right in to Ethics of Elfland today um, because there really is a shift. Um, so these first three chapters were truly him recognizing a problem in the world and uh, sort of setting the foundation for this book. And then Ethics of Elfland really transitions into him giving us now his personal evidence for mm-hmm. why he believes orthodoxy. So... Um, In chapter one, um, I'm just going to read a quote from it. Uh, He said, The central Christian theology, sufficiently summarized in the Apostles' Creed, is the best root of energy and sound ethics. So that was the point that he was making in chapter one, that he has found the Christian theology to be true, to be lasting, and um, he's writing this book to explain why. Um, In chapter two, The Maniac, we talked about how philosophies or um, religions that rely solely on logic or reason uh, will end in madness and Mm. can't be successful. Um, He talks about you have to make room for the the mystical element in things. We can't Mm. explain everything. We can't know everything Mm -hmm. and remain sane. So in order to not... Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, you're fine. Just in order to uh, to not go insane, we have to mm-hmm. we have to have those things in balance. What were you going to say? I just I found that chapter particularly poignant. I I related to a lot of, of what he was talking about. And I remember one of the things that we emphasized was, um, I guess, his his advice on like how to get out of that cycle of thought. Yes. Like whenever you're you're focusing too much on one idea to just sort of wake up and smell the roses, you know, yeah. literally to just like go outside and talk to people and like yeah. interact in daily life. And I think that's a, a theme that keeps coming back. Yes. Um, and then chapter three, which you hopefully just uh, listened to that episode um, recently, The Suicide of Thought, we talked about um, modern systems of thought that are incomplete that lead to um, self-destruction. So basically mm-hmm. kind of a similar continuation of, of the previous chapter, but that, um, if we accept certain aspects of truth, but ignore other aspects of truth, we can't have a complete picture. We can't mm-hmm. really 
no objective truth fully. Um, and so that was him kind of setting the foundation for us. And um, now we're going to get into a kind of different sort of ch- chapter today. Mm-hmm. And um, I think just a quick note before we do that Dale Alquist has also said as well, I, I um, use his study guide to prepare and to study what, while I'm reading this book. Um, he, his recommendation is to not get too caught up with how quotable every single sentence mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. Um, and to keep moving through. And Grace, as she just told me before we started, you know, you realize he's saying he's giving this one message, really. Um, but saying it in many different ways. So we're going to attempt to decipher what that message is and lay it out. Yeah. So when I first started reading this, um, I was like, oh, no, I don't know if I understand where he's going with this. And this often happens in in orthodoxy and in his other works as well. But orthodoxy is, I guess, the first like um, major nonfiction that I'm trying to work my way all the way through. So as I'm starting to read these various chapters at first, he starts talking about all these things and using all these examples that I'm like, I have no idea what he's talking about. This is really confusing. Oh no. What if I don't understand this at all to be even be able to talk about it. Mm-hmm. But then every time by the end of the chapter, I'm like, Oh, okay. I get it. Like now that I'm looking back, I was actually comprehending more than I thought I was. Yeah. Um, because again, he does come at the same point from so many different angles that by the end of the chapter, if you stick with it, I think, some of it starts to be illuminated. So um, with this one in particular, I think, well, he himself does a really good job of summarizing at the end of the chapter, um, all of his main points. Yeah. Just kind of, he neatly lays them out in the last paragraph. Yeah. Um, And so I think that's helpful too, for anyone out there who's reading it. If you kind of go to the end of the chapter and see what he's trying to say and then go back maybe and read it again, it might be helpful. Yeah. So, the main idea of this chapter, which I have summarized in two sentences, um, mm-hmm. is that Chesterton finds the wisdom of Elfland to be superior to the wisdom of the world. And mm-hmm. he's um, laying out for us his personal philosophy, his natural religion, what he has found to be true. Um, so I'm going to actually turn to the end of the chapter and... Um, we're going to break down those five points that he makes at the end of the chapter and then kind of go back and draw from uh, the evidence that he gives within the chapter. So um, the first thing that he claims is that the world does not explain itself. It Mm. may be a miracle with a supernatural explanation. It may be a conjuring trick with a natural explanation. But the explanation of the conjuring trick, if it is to satisfy me, will have to be better than the natural explanations I have heard. The thing is magic, true or false. <laughs> so, Grace, let's jump what in on that mean? first point. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, what he's trying to say is that we tend to assume that everything around us in the universe, in the world, um, is self-evident or it explains itself um, in the sense that it, it's necessary like it had to be the way that it is Mm. um that leaves on the trees have to be green Mm -hmm. that the sky has to be up here blue to us you know that um that humans have to have two legs you know or whatever and that's one of his favorite (laughs) things to mention the two legs thing um from man alive we remember that anyway yeah so i 
I think what he's trying to say is that we tend to just assume like, oh, this is how things had to be. Mm -hmm. Um, But he's trying to argue that, no, this isn't how things had to be. And the reason he knows that is because in the fairy stories, it's not always that way. Yeah. Um, In the fairy stories. Candlesticks growing on trees instead of leaves. Right. Exactly. Instead of leaves. So not even just green leaves. He talks about, you know, they could have been scarlet leaves. And like, how do you know that they haven't changed to green right before you looked at them? (laughs) And it seems it seems kind of silly, but um, but it's the point he's trying to make is true that um things don't have to be the way that they are or they Mm -hmm. didn't have to be the way that they are um and in thinking about that he recognizes that there may be something behind them yes like there may be someone behind them um, making that choice that the leaves are green and the sky is blue and humans have two legs yeah and he Um, talks about that it this life that we live and this world that we live in is a story with a storyteller Mm -hmm. um and uh he yeah I I like how he talks about a lot about the difference between law here like what Mm. people assume has to be law and magic Mm -hmm. and you know when we (laughs) hear that word magic as Christians it's like well what is what does he mean exactly by that but it's exactly what you said like things did not they don't have to be the way that they are god made them that way for his particular purposes but um it chesterton has this wonderful sense of i was gonna say wonder but like awe of the world because he allows his mind to imagine the other possibilities of what things could be Mm. um and Yeah, I um, I like that he looks at the world as magic and not as mm-hmm. just some, I, I don't know, like a, a clock mm-hmm. performing as it should because all of the cogs are in place. Right, like, and he, he references that, that idea of like the, you know, the deist idea of the clockmaker or whatever, yeah. um, that everything is just a machine and we don't really have, it's back to determinism, we don't really have much choice, we don't really, we're just kind of going along the way that we were made to go along or whatever um but yeah his idea of wonder that childlike idea of wonder he keeps coming back to that that's his main I mean I think that's Chesterton's MO in general just Mm -hmm. like um being more like a child and I actually wrote um in the Ignatius Press version that I have on page 59 he talks about how a child of seven is excited by being told that Tommy opened a door and saw a dragon But a child of three is excited by being told that Tommy opened a door. Yes. Boys like romantic tales, but babies like realistic tales because they find them romantic. And I think that's what he's trying to call us back to is this sense that everything around us didn't have to be the way that it was. And because of that, we should be astonished by it. Um, We should be astonished that men have two legs. We should be astonished that the leaves are green and the sky is blue. Like, and I I wrote in the margins, it reminded me of my godson, Henry, who is three. And um, he does this thing. I may have mentioned this before. He does this thing that's so cute where anytime something happens, anything happens, like he uh, puts blocks on top of each other and he hits them and they all fall down. He, he does this thing where he, shakes like his whole body shakes and his it's almost like the energy is coming out his fingertips and he's like so delighted and so excited that everything is just like moving and um and it's just I feel like that's how Chesterton went through life like (laughs) as this like large child child (laughs) yeah yeah that child right 
Well, yeah. I actually think he did almost lose it. I think in mm-hmm. that time in his life um, where he sort of gave himself over to darkness, at least almost completely. Yeah. Um, we t- mentioned that before. and But I think whenever he realized how that was leading to destruction and he sort of did a 180, that's when the childlike na- his childlike nature was sort of reawoken in him. And so I think yeah. that gives me hope that it can be re- reawoken in all of us as well. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, that's an excellent point. I think um, a quote from the beginning of this chapter that's pertinent to what we've been talking about is when he talks about how he was told when he was a boy that basically like when you grow up, mm. you're going to lose all of these childlike ideals, basically. Um, and I think every a lot of my favorite writers have expressed similar sentiments. And I know Lewis does as well, but he said... Mm. Um, growing up didn't make him lose his ideals. He says, I've not lost my ideals in the least. My faith in fundamentals is exactly as it always was. What I've lost is my old childlike faith in practical politics. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. um, it, it reminds me of uh, just Lewis saying, you're, like, you're never too old for... Like, if, if you think that you've grown up past fairy stories or past stories in general... Um, <laughs> a sad day for you like you're you're never too old for it when you grow up you should you should love these stories even more and and chesterton is saying like no i've actually fairy tales make more sense to me than the practical politics of this world um Mm. so i think we talked about this last time that there's a difference between the truth itself and our perception of it Mm. um that like there's something that's solid there's something that's concrete Um, that never changes and that's what he means by like never losing his ideals there's something um, there that is it's true it's reality and he doesn't ever lose it Um, but what he did lose as he said when he got older was basically trust that uh, certain people around him who were claiming to have it all figured out actually had it all figured out like I think he he recognized that the people who are claiming to have it all figured out are the ones that are most suspect (laughs) yeah yeah well and he's saying like he talks a lot about in this chapter um, science, right? And mm-hmm. there are laws that have, you know, people have identified. But mm. um, I think a point he's trying to make is that because he talks about Newton and the apple falling from the <laughs> tree and everything. Um, it, the, I think he's trying to make this point that um, while there are like uh, scientific laws that have been identified or established whatnot by scientists they're not the ones that create created the tree or the Mm -hmm. apple that Mm -hmm. falls from the tree and Mm -hmm. he's he talks about how we assume that we can expect certain things to behave in certain ways right but he said it's really not it's not guaranteed like we assume in fall that you know leaves will fall off of the trees and um and he's like, it, we don't see that it just, it, during that time of the year, we see these beautiful trees. We see leaves falling off of the trees and we see them as, what does he say, tenderly connected or something, but rather mm-hmm. they're just things that happen. <laughs> you know, I don't know. He he has yeah. a sense of wonder about everything and he doesn't think like that Like there didn't have to be have a connection n- yeah. between those two things. Like leaves didn't have to fall off the trees in autumn, you know, like that it could have been a different way. 
they don't have to be the way that they are. I think that's the point he's trying to make. Like he's not trying to say that like science is is wrong or that the laws of of nature right. that we've discovered are somehow false. Like that's not that's not necessarily what he's, what he's trying to say. No. Yeah, like he's trying to make a point, and the point that I think he's trying to make is is exactly that. That like yeah, the things that we see like don't have to be the way that they are. Like and that we they don't do know everything. Yeah, so we can kind of base our our lives and our assumptions like off of these things, but yeah. at the end of the day, it's bigger than that. Like yes. it didn't have to be that way, and because it didn't have to be that way, it could be a different way. You know, like and, how um, could it not be? Yeah, and we're know, only the different. ones discovering it, not the ones creating it. Right. Like too, we're we're observing this amazing, wonderful world, but like the storyteller is the one who created these laws created these things um Mm -hmm. created the world as we know it um do you want to lead us into the second point sure so um he says second i came to feel as if magic must have a meaning and meaning must have someone to mean it there was something personal in the world as in a work of art whether it meant whether it meant it what (laughs) whatever it meant it meant violently (laughs) <laughs> I like that. Whatever it meant, it meant violently. There's, uh, yeah, just this idea that, like, when you can see the world the way that we were just discussing, like, you see it as a work of art. It didn't have to be the way that it was, and yet it is, and it's beautiful, and it's exciting, and it's astonishing. And if that's the case, then, you know, it's just like if you're looking at a, a beautiful painting, you're wondering, who is it that painted this? Why did they paint it this way? It must have some deeper meaning or purpose that it's trying to convey to me. Mm. Um, to see the world as a work of art implies an artist. Yeah. Agreed. The mere repetition made the things to me rather more weird than more rational. It was as if, having seen a curiously shaped nose in the street and dismissed it as an accident, I had then seen six other noses of the same astonishing, astonishing shape. I should have fancied for a moment that it must be some local secret society. So one elephant having a trunk was odd, but all elephants having trunks looked like a plot. Ah. (laughs) I just, that idea that, that like seeing how things repeat themselves, you know, these, these like laws of these quote unquote laws of science or whatever is like, there's a reason there must be a reason there must be like a purpose or a meaning something deeper it's it's trying to tell me something you said the grass seemed signaling to me with all its fingers (laughs) at once the crowded stars seemed bent upon being understood the sun would make me see him even if he rose a thousand times Mm. the recurrences of the universe rose to the maddening rhythm of an incantation and I began to see an idea that it's it's like there's something there's meaning there's a reason Mm -hmm. (laughs) for this I don't know how else to yeah I guess like emphasize it than other than he did it goes back to that quote that you read at the beginning um where he talks about a child wanting something repeated again and again and again Mm -hmm. and how Mm -hmm. god is not um hampered by the same um limitations as people Mm -hmm. and he delights in that repetition as well like making the daisy a million times over and making mm. the sunrise every day and set every day. His, he's arguing against the idea, the modern idea that if something repeats itself, it must be dead. 
Mm. It must be the clock, like you were mentioning earlier. Mm -hmm. Um, But instead, he's arguing that if something repeats itself, it actually has an overabundance of life. Mm. Um, And thus the child, you know, kicking in and screaming. Yeah, yeah, being excited to see the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. And he's arguing that, like, if we as adults can't, like, deal with the monotony, um, we change. Mm. And so if there's a lot of change and variation, then it's actually a a sort of like deadness Mm. um, that's causing the change. It's like us wanting to like kind of reinvigorate ourselves or something, um, implying that we've lost that life or we've lost that vitality and we have to like resurrect it. But he's saying like with God, like what if he never loses it? So he does the same thing over and over and over and over and over and over yeah. again and never feels that he needs to stop. Yeah. You know, when you think of like when you think about specific examples of this, like, I don't know, like kissing your spouse or like mm. having a good breakfast or mm-hmm. like these are things that you you don't get tired of. It's like mm-hmm. it's not like you kiss your spouse on your wedding day at your wedding and then you're like great we did that we're never going to do that again because that's kind of seems repetitive mm-hmm. or you know you have I'm a like I talk about breakfast too much but anyway <laughs> you know what I mean it's like yeah. the the things that give us joy make us feel peaceful mm-hmm. make us feel fulfilled are often repetitive mm-hmm. like daily prayer mm-hmm. and drinking y- my cup of coffee <laughs> drinking a cup of coffee like enjoying a conversation with somebody Mm-hmm. um who you're really close with or mm-hmm. um and I think he argues that if we do find those things that you mentioned monotonous some part of us has died and needs resurrecting yeah um or needs shocking back to life like yeah. an EKG you know like I th- that's that's the whole man alive principle right and how do you is think that he's trying to shock himself back alive right right how do you think he is suggesting that we do that if we do find some part of us is dead i don't know if he gives a solution here but what would you think i would think he is something very simple something not so extreme as in man alive (laughs) i think i think something very simple as in just like forcing ourselves to look at something from a different angle you know um considering the coffee in my hand and the taste of it and thinking about it and contemplating it Mm. and like taking a minute to not be distracted by focusing on everything else I'm trying to do while I'm drinking the cup of coffee, but actually just like contemplating it. Um, I think he did a lot of, of contemplating of the world around him, you know, and that's what sort of got him to realize these things. Yeah. Wonderful. Um, okay. Let's jump into the third point. Uh, third, I thought this purpose this purpose beautiful in its old design in spite of its defects such as dragons um <laughs> it just reminds me of the quote you just read a little bit before about tommy opening the door to a dragon and then <laughs> the, the little babe loving tommy just opening the door um i think it's really fun how he talks about some of the fairy tales specifically in this chapter mm-hmm. so maybe we can jump into that for for this point but um, he talks about how he like mentions a few well-known fairy tales and how each of them teaches us something like very obvious, but also, uh, ingenious. Um, mm-hmm. he talks about Cinderella, um, and I, uh, 
and how like raising the humble is the the lesson that we learn from that story. Um, he talks about Sleeping Beauty, um, that a thing must be loved before it is lovable. Mm. <laughs> then he talks about, he first talks about Jack the Giant Killer and how giants must be killed because they are gigantic. And like, <laughs> he says that like that's an obvious truth, which um, made me laugh. Um, <laughs> I mean, he connects it to pride, right? This idea of like being larger than yourself or yeah. something and that's what needs to be killed. Right. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think... Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I think that one of the other points of this, um, the part where that you just read, I thought this purpose beautiful in its old design in spite of its defects. Um, I don't know, just the idea that all of the things, like the way that the universe is, it didn't have to be this way, but the fact is that it's actually beautiful. Mm. Like it didn't have to be beautiful. It could have been something ugly and yet mm. it's beautiful. It's yeah. good and not something bad. Um, the world as a work of art it's mm, it's like mm-hmm. this thing of pleasure it's delightful yeah if, if only we can open our eyes to see it that way mm-hmm. because it, like you said sometimes we have to be resurrected in order to see it that way but yeah we're we've been given this beautiful world that we can either delight in every day and be surprised by mm-hmm. or we can find monotonous and restless you know Mm -hmm. yeah and and dragons um (laughs) they are necessary in uh in mythology in fairy tales and stories um because there's always something that we're overcoming right like the dragon represents so much but definitely adversity and um heroism in order to face a dragon and um there's something very mystical about a dragon right or like other creatures like that ogres or goblins or whatever it may be um and yeah strong and powerful and mysterious but yet able to be overcome yeah that's one that's one of his famous quotes that i actually thought came from this chapter but it doesn't it comes from somewhere else um that like the purpose of telling the stories about the boy defeating the dragon isn't that dragons exist but that dragons can be defeated yes yeah um so that adversity can be overcome yeah it's it's meant to be overcome that yeah that ordinary boy does something extraordinary yeah he Mm. he has talked about that idea in a few different places in his essays and stuff that um the fantastic thing about a story is not that you have this superhero type character doing superhero things. You have this ordinary character doing extraordinary things. Mm-hmm. And as a analogy for the Christian life, um, what? who is it? Oh my gosh. This is horrible. I was reading scripture the other day. Who is it that God, who is it that God, is it Gideon who God calls and he's like the weakest of his tribe or whatever God calls him? Gideon was in the readings the other day. So maybe that's, anyway, it's, he's like, you, he's basically says, I'm not Lord, I'm not strong enough. And, um, like the Lord just wants him to bring himself and like the Lord will provide Mm. the strength for him to accomplish his task. And I feel like that's part of the um, 
wonderful adventure of life is that like we're just these ordinary mundane people but like if we show up and we are open to what the storyteller is trying to tell in our life Mm. like he he provides the strength that we need to slay a dragon or to you know conquer um I don't know I've been reading the hobbit like a goblin cave or something yeah Um, (laughs) absolutely yeah yeah fourth This is one of my favorite points that he makes in this chapter. That the proper form of thanks is to some form of humility and restraint. We should thank God for beer and burgundy by not drinking too much of them. We owed also an obedience to whatever made us. Mm. So this idea, one of the things that he says, um, or I I wrote in the margin um, earlier in the chapter, Chesterton knows that he is not entitled to anything at all. Mm. That basically because the universe didn't have to be the way that it is, but it is this way. Um, at, like we tend to act like, I don't know. We just tend to act so entitled. We tend to think like, Oh, I'm owed this or that yes. or the other thing. And it's like when you didn't create anything, you didn't even create yourself. You didn't even create your own life. So like you're not owed anything at all, you know, but yeah. he sees this almost as like exciting. Like and we can see it as like a, like a bad thing or something that's like a downer but he sees it as as like okay so this is what I've got to work with I've got to accept it and now it's kind of an adventure you know to kind of make things work out with like what I've been given so he starts saying things like um I could never mix in the common murmur of that rising generation against monogamy because no restriction on sex seems so odd and unexpected as sex itself Um, And then he says later, keeping to one woman is a small price for so much as seeing one woman to -hmm. complain that I could only be married once was like complaining that I had only been born once. Um, So just saying like that everything being able to see everything in front of you is so beautiful and and astonishing and shocking and rare in some sense, like it didn't have to be this way. And yet it is. And I've been given this as like a gift Um, to demand more just seems senseless to him. Um, because like what he's been given is what he's been given. Like the, mm-hmm. the rule is what it is. He's, he, he's kind of saying like, it makes sense to follow the rules, even if they're mysterious, mm-hmm. um, not rules that are evil, but, but rules that are rules for maybe you don't know the reason, right. um, that there's this, just like in a fairy story, there's a particular law that's conditional, you know, Mm. um, you can go to the ball, but you have to be back by 12. You know, it's like, as soon as she starts to question the fairy godmother, well, why do I have to be back by 12? Then the fairy godmother could respond like, well, why do you have to go to the ball at all? You know? (laughs) Um, and so it's like, you know, well, why do I have to only be married to one person? Like, um, well, like, why is there marriage at all? You know, like, why do you have the ability to be married at all? Like, there's, it's like, we, we just act so entitled all the time. And I think that we can honestly make ourselves so miserable acting entitled all the time. Um, Chesterton was such a joyful person once he kind of discovered these things, um, because he was able to delight in, in what he was given, even if compared to maybe how other people think about it, it seemed like, not a lot. Um, yeah. you know, he can entertain himself with all the things that are in his house because he delights in all the things that are in his house. He has such um, gratitude for everything. Yeah. And that's yeah. what he says. He says in the chapter very, uh, very pointedly that gratitude is what leads to happiness. Yeah, I agree. And, and 
there's something I think that he's saying that we can't truly appreciate we, we can't truly enjoy the things of this world unless we have that gratitude that it's like it is the key to everything is like mm-hmm. s- like you said seeing clearly what's in front of you and then having that gratitude for it knowing that you didn't <laughs> provide it for yourself mm-hmm. okay so his last point that he makes and last and strangest there had come into my mind a vague and vast impression that in some way all good was a remnant to be stored and held sacred out of some primordial ruin. Man had saved his good, as Crusoe saved his goods. He had saved them from a wreck. (sighs) I'm going to read the last sentence as well. Mm -hmm. All this I felt, and the age gave me no encouragement to feel it, and all this time I had not even thought of Christian theology. Mm. So, yeah, I, I particularly like that last sentence because it reveals that, like, these, um, thoughts that he's having about life and about the world these were in his mind before he even considered christianity as the solution to right. everything was he was thinking and feeling to him which is why he calls it his natural philosophy it's something right. that he just kind of learned by by reading non-christian things like fairy tales yeah and he and he is drawn to fairy tales and he's figuring out the reasons why, but he hasn't, yeah, he hasn't made that connection yet. Mm. Um, yeah, I like the the whole idea of Crusoe. He talks about Robinson Crusoe being mm-hmm. wrecked and on this, like, rock of an island, and um, all of a sudden, he's so appreciative of all the things that he, kitchen, random kitchen tools and things that he was able to save from the wreckage because he might not have saved them. Yeah. Um, and so he's, he's talking about how, like, even though we... I think this is what he's saying that like, even though we live in this fallen world and we experience brokenness um, and the destruction that comes from sin, there's also the earth in and of itself is not evil. It's good. Um, and everything that we have been able to save in a sense or everything that remains of the universe of the world, like is good. And we should even more appreciate that it wasn't lost. You know, um, that even though there's sin and even though there's brokenness, there's still things such as friendship and marriage and there's things such as coffee and breakfast (laughs) and there's things such as, you know, the stars and the sky and the sun and the moon and, you know, all these things. And Mm -hmm. it's like um, that these things are good and the more we can delight in them, uh, the better. Yes. I'd like to read a a quote from near the end of the chapter. Um, Sure. It is a good exercise in empty or ugly hours of the day to look at anything, the coal scuttle or the bookcase, and think how happy one could be to have brought it out of the sinking ship onto the solitary island. So this is what Grace, this is right after what Grace was just Mm. referencing. Um, And then at the end of this paragraph, he says, men spoke much in my boyhood of restricted or ruined men of genius. And it was common to say that many a man was a great might have been. To me, it is a more solid and startling fact that any man in the street is a great might not have been. And mm. he just marvels at, as as we've been saying this whole episode, that we didn't have to exist. None of this had to exist. It's just yeah, this just incredible... the mere fact of existing is the thing that's most astonishing. It's miraculous. And right. when you think about human life and just the biology of how human life 
comes into existence, it really is miraculous. I mean, every um, instance of a child coming into existence is like, it, it's unique. It w- it'll never be repeated again. It never has happened up until that point. And that is a human being that, yeah, no one has ever known and no one will know again. And that's amazing. And that's how... I don't know, glorious the storyteller is in in giving us this world and each other. Um, But I think he's, like, in the end, he's really calling us to see the the everyday and and find that miraculous in it and just recognize that with gratitude we can actually see how miraculous everything is around us. Absolutely. I think what you just read was exactly the answer to the question you asked earlier is like, how does Chesterton recommend that we go about rediscovering this joy? And it literally is that like to sit and contemplate the things around us, you know, um, more often than we do just like to force ourselves to recognize their beauty um, and the fact that appreciate the fact that they didn't have to exist, you know, including ourselves. So, well, I think everyone should go out and enjoy their day very fully. Yes. After listening to this, <laughs> go have a coffee. Yeah. What's a, what's a quick thing that you're grateful for today? Oh gosh. Um, I am grateful for a fantastic doctor here so far. I had a, Good. another appointment this morning and I'm just, um, feeling really peaceful about, um, my coming birth and well, not my birth, my child's birth, <laughs> um, I'm having a C-section, so like the surgical element of things could be nerve-wracking, but honestly, mm-hmm. they've made it really comfortable and peaceful. So I'm yeah, I'm grateful for that. What about you? It's awesome. Um, just very simply, I was sitting in my office this morning reading this chapter, um, making some notes, and I just I have this big window in my little office and I just sitting by it in the sunshine and just like feeling the sunshine on my face and like allowing the sun itself to be the thing that was illuminating my book it something so simple Mm -hmm. but I I haven't been used to that because in teaching in a classroom you know I I had big windows but it was like kind of you're in the middle of this giant cinder block room and you don't really get to like sit in the sun you know what I mean yeah all day long and I would get there before the sun rose and we started really early but now it's like I can drive to work in the sunshine and I can sit in my office in the sunshine and it's just like something so simple but I just love it so much that's awesome wonderful well all right well next time we're gonna read um orthodoxy chapter five the flag of the world so we'll continue going through Chesterton's own uh philosophy Mm-hmm. And until then, you can find us online, Instagram at Pints with Chesterton, websites pintswithchesterton.com, or you can email us at pintswithchesterton at gmail.com. May you all enjoy lives of wit and whimsy. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.